Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being, reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Server Member Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Das, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the Real Love Podcast Series, right here on the Sharon Salzberg Meta Hour. This series features a variety of conversations with some of the world's finest teachers and thinkers, all exploring Sharon's new book, Real Love, The Art of Mindful Connection. Real Love is a field guide for anyone seeking awakened living in the 21st century. To get your copy of Real Love, visit SharonSalzberg.com. This podcast is brought to you by the Be Here Now Network. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, please visit www.BeHereNowNetwork.com backslash Sharon.
Good evening. You ready for a story? A friend who shops at the same small grocery store as I do <laughs> recently mentioned how shocked he was to realize that he never paid much attention to the woman who rings up his purchases day after day. She might as well be a cash register with arms, he said. He determined that the next time he went into the store, he would give the clerk his full attention. He reported back a few days later. The first thing I noticed was that she was singing along to something on the radio and that she has a beautiful voice. And when I told her that, she gave me a radiant smile. Listening to my friend, I realized that I too had hardly noticed the woman. Did she often look a bit sad? I began to imagine my next trip to the store. I'd tell her I'd heard she had a beautiful singing voice and make her day. But when I actually went in and looked for her, she was already smiling broadly. Of course, not everyone we encounter in our everyday lives, whether it's passersby at a grocery store or a colleague at work, will have a beautiful voice or a warm smile to convince us immediately to love others. But there is immense power in the act of showing up for life, in paying attention to other people, to experiences, sounds, and sights. Loving others, whoever they may be, is about seeing and recognizing the basic wish to be happy in ourselves and in others. This wish to be happy is something we share. And simply acknowledging that is the foundation of real love. Of course, I'm reading from the book Real Love by Sharon Salzberg, and uh, it's one of the reasons that we all get to be here together tonight and talk all about love. We're in for a treat. And um, we get to do that with two incomparable women. And of course, I'm talking about the author of the book, Real Love, Sharon Salzberg, who is the author of this and nine other books at this point. World-renowned meditation teacher. And um, in addition to that, we have the pleasure of welcoming back to our stage the four-time Grammy award-winning singer-songwriter and the author of several books and essays, including her memoir, Composed, Roseanne Cash. So we're talking tonight uh, not just about love, but about a particular expression of love, the creative act. And um, when I think of that, of course, I think about the galleries upstairs. Um, those of you who are here with us know that um, uh, we are a museum of Himalayan art here at the Rubin. For those of us joining us on Facebook Live, Instagram Stories, or maybe listening to Sharon's podcast, The Meta Hour, welcome to you all as well. We are here at the Rubin Museum of Art in the heart of Chelsea in New York City, and at the heart of our collection are works of art that are from the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, and uh, many of which 
are made by monks and artisans as a pure devotional act, an act of love, and are really symbols of love themselves. But of course, we can find love and experiences of love in many different artistic outlets. And I'm thinking, as, as we were preparing for tonight, I was thinking about um, the power of a song and even how the saddest, saddest song can make you feel good. And um, just that act of, uh, of connection and how powerful that is to be seen, to feel understood, and to know that we're not actually in isolation at all. So, um, of course, we're, we can see this act of love in the two artists that are here with us tonight. And um, we see that easily in Roseanne's work and um, also in the artistry of Sharon's teaching. She teaches here uh, regularly um, in our weekly mindfulness meditation uh, series. And I've really come to appreciate the artistry of her teaching. And I know I see many familiar faces. Anybody here who's been to that series, our, our weekly um, Lunchtime Wednesdays meditation series? Great. Um, so we'll turn it over to these, these two ladies whom um, maybe they don't know this, but we refer to them as our resident female Buddhas. They are both scribes, both creatives, and both um, really um, experts in this act of exchanging love, and, and perhaps in their personal lives, but really what a gift they give to the public when they do what they do, and that's a gift of love. Let's welcome them, Roseanne Cash and Sharon Salzberg. Thank you. Hello. Hi, Sharon. Hi. <laughs> Hello. You're kind of out there. <laughs> Good. I can sort of see you. Hello. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy to be here with you, really. It's a Me tremendous too. honor. I plan on learning a lot. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> That's great. So. Um, we thought we'd begin with a really short meditation and hopefully have time for a slightly longer one as, as the evening gets on, but just to begin with more fully arriving and actually landing in this place in this time. So just for a few minutes, if you could settle your attention on the feeling of your breath, wherever you feel it most distinctly, and rest. In my early meditation practice, sometimes I would be so hypervigilant, I'd have to say to myself, you're breathing anyway. All you need to do is feel it. So it's kind of like that. Let's just feel it. You're breathing anyway.
So thank you. It always surprises me how even just a few moments can bring me so much more here. It's pretty great, actually. So love. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I've been, I've been dwelling in the neighborhood of love for so long, the effort, the time of writing the book, and now the birth of the book, and um, talking about the book. And, um, there were a couple of things that really came to mind when I was thinking about love and creativity. Um, well, a few things, actually. But um, one was something I had, I had told you, that uh, working on this book reminded me in many ways of an earlier experience I had writing a book called Faith, where there were many times when I was really struggling and I couldn't see my way forward. And at one point... Uh, with Faith, I talked to this fabulous writer, Susan Griffin, who is both writing and coaching writing, and, and she said um, two things to me that were really amazing. She said, first of all, she said, you have to stop thinking of yourself as the, as the person writing this book and think of yourself as the first person who gets to read this book. Mm. And that was tremendous because I had so many, um, so much fear, I guess, about doing it justice. I wanted to do it right. And it was such a, a highfalutin topic. And it was so magnificent and amazing. And I thought, I'm not going to hit it. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really compromise. It's not going to be right. And, and then with her encouragement, I more or less let go of that. And I was just, the words would appear on the monitor. And I'd be so excited. Oh, look, words. I get to read it. <laughs> um, That's interesting <laughs> that you experience that same insecurity and I mean, that's definitive about of being a writer or an artist, those moments where you think, this is crap, and I, why am I doing this, yeah. and it'll never be as good as so-and-so's book or song or whatever. And then you push through, and suddenly a field appears before yeah. you that you, yeah. you can get to. Yeah. But your book, I had this, I told you uh, earlier that it was working on several levels with me. It was reading the words and doing um, the practices that you um, prescribe, but I felt the oddest sense that the book was meditating me. That makes me so happy. <laughs> <laughs> it was working at a really subtle level, yeah, and I yeah. know you know what I mean. Yeah, it was yeah. like it's seeping into your DNA and awakening something that I probably already knew. I'm sure you definitely already knew it. <laughs> well, but not in the way you know it. That's, what was, that's what's fascinating to me. Some of the things you talk about, I know in my work, but I don't know in relationships. It was mm -hmm. interesting to see how it's all the same. Like we talked yeah. about the inner critic. Yeah, yeah. That it, ferocious inner critic. That ferocious inner critic. And the way you wrote about it is exactly, almost identical words of what I would say to my songwriting students. Like that the inner critic can dismantle you and it'll, uh, you've got to get it out and objectify mm -hmm. it, get it outside of your body yeah. to see what yeah. it is. But then I, I tell them something mm -hmm. which is to bring it back later on to edit. Yeah, that, I had never considered that. The, uh, worth, the relative worthiness of the voice of my inner critic, which as many of you know, I named Lucy. Uh, I really apologize to any Lucy's in the room or online, anywhere in the world, actually. Uh, every Lucy that exists. 
Uh, it's Lucy after uh, the character in the Peanuts comic strip, having once seen a cartoon where Lucy is talking to Charlie Brown and says, oh, you know, Charlie Brown, what your problem is, the problem with you is that you're you. And then uh, poor Charlie Brown says, what in the world can I do about that? And then Lucy says, I don't pretend to be able to give advice. I merely point out the problem. <laughs> and uh, I saw the cartoon. A friend of ours had rented a house for many of us to do a retreat in, and it had been left in the room, <laughs> designated for me. And uh, <laughs> uh, whenever I walked by that desk, and I, I, my eye would fall on that line, the problem with you is that you're you. And because that Lucy voice had been so dominant in my earlier life, and so uh, I named my inner critic Lucy, and I sort of mapped my understanding of mindfulness and my progress with mindfulness with how I related to her. Mm. Um, and so what I came to, actually, it was very soon after I saw the cartoon, something great happened for me. And my very first thought was, it's never going to happen again. <laughs> and I responded with, hi, Lucy. <laughs> and followed by, chill out, Lucy which I considered really kind of a triumph in a way, because it was yeah. so different than, you're right, Lucy. You're always right. And it was so different than, oh my god, Lucy's here. What a disgrace. I'm so ashamed. I can't believe she's still here. And, but I never considered, so I was always trying to be nice to her, you know, and yeah. kind of cordial without letting her take over. But I never actually thought about sitting down with her and saying, OK, now everyone's calmer. Well, <laughs> Tell I, me. I, I did something similar a long time ago. I, I, I painted, and I painted my inner critic. And there were these evil little creatures. There were about 10 of them, and I called them the committee. And I actually made a t-shirt of the committee so I could really get them out. But I realized that they want a job. And that if you bring them as a writer, if you bring it back at the end of the process to help you edit, then they're happy. They have a job. That's fantastic. <laughs> I guess I have to write another book. <laughs> but you know, there's a similar story about the problem with you is you. Um, the musician, jazz musician, Charlie Parker, one of the greatest musicians, he was a heroin addict. And he um, was going off to Paris on a trip and to get away. And his friend said to him, you know who will be waiting when you get off the plane? You. It's like you can't get away. Yeah, yeah. you got to take yourself with you. Yeah, always. You always find yourself wherever you go. It's like, <laughs> oh, you again. <laughs> oh, you again. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny when you said that, though, about understanding, because I ended up, um, you know, I learned so much from this woman, Susan, when I was trying to write Faith. And I ended up putting a huge, giant quote of hers in the middle of the book. And then um, uh, quite a number of years later, I ended up on the phone with her because we were, um, I had met this Tibetan nun who'd been a freedom fighter and escaped and uh, had became a nun. And, um, and we were trying to find somebody to write the story of her life. So mm -hmm. I was on the phone with Susan, and she said, I was reading your book, and um, it was really uh, amazing, and there was like... I realized, I don't understand this, and I don't know this, and I don't, I don't see things this way. What a revelation. And then I turned the page, and it was a whole huge long quote from me. <laughs> and I said, see? You do understand. I learned it from you. I read what you wrote, and I went, oh, right. That's the perfect way of saying it. So I think we all actually probably do know, and we forget.
You know, I something you said in the book too about um, this is kind of a segue. It's tangential in a way, but anyway, about three people in a relationship: you, me, and the space between us. That is so such a beautiful concept that yeah. it's inspired me to write about it myself. But I started thinking about that in terms of music. That if the space you, me, and the space and the space is actually music, what that does to a relationship, because I'm married to my collaborator yeah. and we work together a lot. Um, and I think I told you, I don't think we would still be together if we didn't perform together because of the healing power of music. Mm -hmm. and, but also because you see the essence of someone when they're performing and what they give to an audience and how exquisitely beautiful that is and vulnerable and how could you hold on to petty things um, when you see the essence of someone. And I was talking to... Diana Krall about this because she's married to Elvis Costello and I don't know very many couples who do the same thing like that and she's saying it's identical for me. She said I can absolutely hate him that day and then he gets on stage and I see who he is and your heart melts. But I wanted to ask you about the space, if it's not music, what it, else it could be <laughs> that would enhance the two people uh, uh -huh. yeah. you, me, and the space. Right. Well, I think it's authenticity because well, I, I have this go. image, as you were saying it, of um, you know, somebody getting up on the stage in another way. You know, like I don't play music with people. I often team teach with people or uh, involved in different collaborations. And uh, even as you said, get up on the stage, I had an image of uh, years and years ago, when I first went to India, which was, I went in 1970, and I was still uh, wandering around looking for a teacher and looking for a practice, and, um, and it was still 1970, it was right toward the end of the year, I went to a, a yoga conference, an international yoga conference in New Delhi, uh, which was a really dismal affair, and the low point of which was the yogis and swamis up on the stage pushing and shoving against each other to be the first to grab the mic and speak. <laughs> and it was by the sheerest of coincidences that actually Dan Goleman, who was at the time a psychology student studying meditation, happened to be delivering a paper at that conference. And he mentioned he was on his way to an intensive 10-day meditation course. I thought, that's it. And it was it. Um. But that image, obviously, people don't always do that blatantly, but there's, there could be a lot of that going on, you know, up on the stage. Um, there's artifice, or there's uh, that extra thing of, you know, uh, so it's beautiful. What you're talking about is, is the most open, authentic. Well, that's right. And my, my idea and understanding of performing has changed over the 38 years I've been doing it. In the beginning, I thought it was um, a way to get judged, yeah. that you went on the stage to be judged, and that perfection was part of what you were attempting. So many things you talk about in your book, not yeah. about performance and music, but it kept the light bulb kept going off. And over time, I've come to realize it's not about that at all. It's about energy exchange, yeah. and it's about um, feelings. You know, I mean, Bob Dylan said, "An audience doesn't come to." 
feel my feelings, they come to feel their own feelings. To, yeah. They want you to open it up for them so that they can feel it. So that to me is love. Yeah. Yeah. And oftentimes during concert, as people do in an audience, someone will yell out, I love you, we love you. And Sharon, my first thought, I realized reading your book that my first thought whenever someone says that is, you don't really know me. And that's kind of sad. Yeah. But then I always say, I love you too. <laughs> Isn't well, that that's funny? the space in between. There you go. That is the space in right. between. Right, you don't know me, but I love you too. And yeah. this is what we're all working towards, yeah. right? No, it's true. I mean, in the beginning of my teaching career, um, I, I was terrified of public speaking. I could never, you, you ever, ever, ever yeah. give a talk. And the um, construct, the, the uh, schedule of our retreats is that you practice in different ways all day with some teacher contact or maybe questions and answers. And there's one formal lecture every night. So the first retreat I actually taught in this country was with my colleague, Joseph Goldstein. It was 30 days, and he had to give every talk. Because wow. I couldn't, I was petrified, I couldn't do it. I thought, my big fear was that my mind would go blank right. and I would just sit there <laughs> and be completely humiliated and I could not do it. And people kept coming up to him, yelling at him, saying, why won't you let her have a voice? Why won't you let her speak? <laughs> and he kept saying, I'd love a night off. Just like, talk to her, you know, couldn't do it. And then probably a year or more went by and I thought, you know, there is this one topic, loving-kindness, where there's a, a guided meditation you can do. So if my mind goes blank, I can launch into the guided meditation. Mm. Maybe nobody will notice. So at home in Massachusetts, I have piles and piles and piles of cassette tapes because I can only give one talk on loving-kindness. It was all the same talk. And then a long, long time went, late, went by, and I thought, you know what? It's all about loving-kindness. It's all about connection. Mm. That's why we're in this room together. That's right. It's not about my expertise in something. It's just about connection. And that was the moment I could begin to give talks. I've learned that myself in performing. You know, like I used to have dreams about forgetting lyrics or something. Every time I've forgotten a lyric, I mean, that's the moment the audience loves the most. Yeah, your, your humanity is revealed and they feel connected to that. Yeah. They don't want perfection. Perfection is the enemy of good. Is that yeah, the saying? True. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, it's really true. And I, I told Pema Chodron that, that I was so afraid of... Wait, you told Pema Chodron something? Yes, I did. <laughs> we were having lunch together. <laughs> we were having lunch together, and I said... I love that. I was always... <laughs> I was always Me and Pema were sitting around, and... <laughs> no, go ahead. Yes, Sorry. 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 No, it's, no, no, it's, it's like... It gives me a little thrill. <laughs> it was thrilling for me, too. I said I was always terrified of speaking because I was afraid my mind would go blank. And she said, I was always terrified of speaking because I was afraid I was going to like just detour into some topic that was completely tangential. And she said, in all these years of doing that, no one's complained. Mm. <laughs> no one's come up and said, you know, you started out talking about that. And you ended up talking about that. How could you? It's like, here we are together. You know, you know there was something else I wanted to ask you about. Um, this also, uh, seen through the lens of a performer and an artist, this whole concept of self-love, it makes me a little nervous mm -hmm. after a certain point because mm -hmm. where do you, where's the line between self-love and self-indulgence, self-absorption, self, -love and self, -indulgence, self, -absorption, self um, 
well, to the exclusion of service, to the exclusion of other people's feelings, or um, like I have a friend who, whenever there's any hint of conflict, she'll say, "I must take care of myself," and she slams the door on you, and there's no more conversation. She thinks that that's self-love, and to me, that that's it's hurtful and mm -hmm. you know, dismissive and disrespectful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So how? And a lot of, okay, so here's, here's a more specifically a question. So I, I teach songwriting quite often and go into schools, and I run into this phenomenon regularly, which is a young songwriter who thinks that he doesn't need to know the tradition he's writing in <clears throat> or any songwriters who came before him or uh, what a rhyme scheme means or the mechanics of... <clears throat> you know, uh, melody or verse chorus structures or any of the mechanics, any of that, because his expression is enough. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's completely self-indulgent. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But some would say, well, that's valid, you know, his yeah. expression. I said, well, that's what toddlers do. That's, you know, art requires discipline. Explain, Sharon. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with you here, too. Oh, good. <laughs> There's a, a, a time monk who used to say, it's not a question of following your heart. It's a question of training your heart. Oh, I love yeah. that. That's um, good. I think about it largely, I think, in terms of balance. You know, like, for many of us, with, with Lucy, the strongest thing going, and, uh, you know, that tremendous kind of um, sense of blame and failure, the balance is actually moving away from that and having some kindness towards yourself and being able to begin again. It's like resilience training, you know, mm -hmm. like, yeah, I blew it, I made a mistake, let me start over, you know, rather than collapse or just blame myself for the next 15 years, you know, right, like, right. and so that's a lot of what that kind of conversation is about, you know, let's move away from that. And there can definitely be a place where, um, you know, it, it just becomes, uh, it's like a parody or satire almost of itself, you know, like I'm being nice to myself, so I'm therefore. Yeah. Well, go back for a second about um, something you said made me think about maternal guilt. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I have five children, mm. and so I have maternal guilt in spades <laughs> because, um, you know, the worst thing in the world is to see your child suffer. Yeah. And even worse than that is to know or think that you caused any yeah. suffering. Yeah. And to be aware of something later on that you realize that child didn't need that at all. I shouldn't have done that if I'd only done that. So you do talk about this in the book, too, mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. loving yourself through regret mm -hmm. and guilt. Mm -hmm. Would you talk a little bit more about yeah. that? Yeah. Um, in, uh, and on the Buddhist psychology, there's actually a... Uh, with this kind of an excruciating, you know, exactitude about words, um, there's a difference between remorse and guilt. Remorse being the kind of genuine pain of right. seeing, you know, I blew it or could have done better or I really broke the fabric of some trust or whatever it was and, and lessons learned, you know, I want to move on. I want to move on with determination to see more clearly. And Whereas guilt is, is, not, is not having the ability to move on. It's being stuck. Like, I am the terrible parent. I always have been. I always will be. It's never going to change. I'm only that. I've never done anything good for my children. This is the only thing I've ever done. You know, and it's really being frozen in time, which is, in a way, that's what trauma is also. It's like yeah. freezing. 
uh, being stuck in that way. And so, how do you um, break the stuckness, though? Well, some of it is actually under its wisdom. It's understanding that you know what, uh, this isn't serving. This is an old habit. Hi, Lucy. You know, like right. have a cup of tea, just relax. Uh, I'm going to see what I might do. You know, in terms of making amends or lessons learned, and move into that kind of more positive direction. There's also a certain sense of um, I've at times taught with his friend Mark Epstein, who's a psychiatrist here in town and, and has written many books on Buddhism and psychotherapy. And uh, his, his favorite, um, his mentor in a way, on a doubt they ever met, but uh, was D.W. Winnicott, who's a psychoanalyst in Britain. And um, he's always quoting him. And, and one of his, his quotations is, uh, just be a good enough mother, just be good enough. And people protest in terms of gender and he says, well, you know, he was in Britain and the only people bringing their kids were the mothers, so that's what he said, but it means be a good enough parent. Since someone in the room always says, well, what does it mean to be a good enough mother? And Mark says, it means surviving your child's rage. And then, and then someone says, what does it mean to survive your child's rage? And Mark says, um, it means don't be too invasive and don't be withdrawn. Like hang in there with the yeah. feeling, you know, be yeah. fully present with what is. And then I always say, that's what we call mindfulness. That's exactly what we do with ourselves. And so how would, um, I mean, you also talk about how our earliest relationships hardwire our understanding mm -hmm. of future relationships. <laughs> and so how do you break that chain through mindfulness as well? Yes, everything. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's the intentionality, actually, right. um, in that. Um, I mean, your own suffering. You talk yeah, about that. Yeah, your, yeah. your own childhood and how you. Yeah. Yeah. Brought love into that. Yeah. I mean, I can't remember if this is in the book or not. I always have a hard time writing it because it's very visual memory. But um, I was on this. <laughs> I was on the stage once with the Dalai Lama. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Was Pema there as well? No. <laughs> she wasn't. But I was on the stage with the Dalai Lama. And Matthew Ricard is a French. I was on the stage with Bob Dylan. I'm impressed. <laughs> I was going to say, I don't know. Elvis Costello. Diana <laughs> Crawford. The meeting of worlds. Um, so anyway, I was on the stage with I love this. the Dalai Lama and uh, Richard Davidson, who's a neuroscientist in Wisconsin, studying meditation, and um, Barbara Fredrickson, who's a researcher studying meditation in North Carolina, and a few other people. And uh, Barbara and Richie got into this thing with the Dalai Lama about uh, good parenting, you know, and coming from a warm, nurturing, affectionate home. And, and the Dalai Lama started talking about his mother, who he always says was his greatest teacher. Mm -hmm. You know, she taught me compassion. She taught me everything. And, and I could feel the room, the mood in the room was going down, you know, because it was all about how hard it is if you didn't have that to, oh, right. you know. I mean, even the term hardwired, it's so harsh, you know. And, right. and uh, you know, I could feel everyone's getting as depressed as I feel right now. And so I raised my hand. And I said, well, you know, I, I'm sure that's true, but like I didn't have that kind of childhood. And this is why it's so visual. Both the Dalai Lama and his translator, their mouths went, oh. 
and I never know how to write that. Like, oh, <laughs> they look so sad. <laughs> and then I said, but what I had was a strong intention. I wanted to be better. Yeah. I wanted to make a right. different kind of life. And out of that intention, I found kind of the sources of that love and ways to love. And you know, I found it without that. And, and I found everyone was so happy in the room. <laughs> That's a really ephemeral and kind of inexplicable thing, though, because I had that, too. I had a tough childhood, too. My father was a drug addict, and my mother was enraged about it and very distracted. And, um, and I was very resilient. I created imaginary... Um, adults who were safe yeah. and and I was an artist and I knew it early on and I knew that that could save me art and music could save me and it has many times mm -hmm. but I have siblings who didn't have that yeah. and who even though are alive some have not survived our yeah. childhood yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and sometimes I have survivor's guilt over that and I just wonder what is it in certain people that you can survive and that you're longing for love and art and healing is so great yeah. that yeah. it will carry you through terrible trauma. Yeah. And other people who give up right away, yeah. who don't have the, the longing, which I actually think longing is a wonderful thing to keep yeah, your yeah. whole life. Yeah, yeah not to get rid of it with anything, with love, yeah, even yeah, yeah. love. But what is that yeah. in some people that other people don't have? And why? It's so sad. Yeah, it's it is very sad. But I would say, you know, even if someone doesn't have it throughout much of their life, I wouldn't give up on them, you know, and the possibility of that turning around, I just wouldn't. And, mm -hmm. But of course, clearly it's true. I, I think for me, it wasn't even so much the longing Although I actually agree with you that that kind of longing channels us through yeah. everything. But there was some kind of knowing. Mm. Like I look back, you know, I left for college when I was 16. I left for India when I was 18. Um, I had done an Asian philosophy course. There was a, the possibility of going to India or going anywhere in the world through an independent study program. I created a project that I want to go to India and learn how to meditate. And they accepted it, and I got on an airplane. I'd never even been to California. Wow. You know, like, um, and I think, how did I know? You know, there was something in me that just knew. There's something else. There's something there for me. Right. There's something in that system, that way of thinking. There's something I, that will, will be there for me, something truthful for me. I mean, I could have, I was in college in Buffalo. I could have stayed there, I suppose, and, uh, you know, studied. I could have studied Buddhism. I could have gotten a doctorate. I could have, you know, done whatever. But I got on that airplane at the age of 18. And I think something in us does know. So it was, along with the yearning, yeah. there's a confidence or... Yeah, and that mystery of why do you know, how do you know, I mean, that in that mystery is a lot of art and yeah. music, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. We say I never think of myself as an artist except when I'm introduced as one, <laughs> so, <laughs> which I always like, so thank you. <laughs> and, and then I think, oh, I write, actually I write. That's, that's all right. You know, um, when Dawn was speaking earlier, I was thinking, she said something that made me think about um, the love in music. I remember uh, right after 
you know, those few months after 9-11 were so tough here, and we lived downtown, and um, my kids were downtown at school, and it was so traumatic and awful. And then you remember the plane crash that happened in December. So it was, it was like this series of events, if you were in New York, that was just mm -hmm. horrifying. And I was stoic, and I had little kids, and you know, I was just plowed through. And then the, was sitting in the kitchen listening to the radio at Christmas, the British Proms, and they played uh, Barber's Adagio for Strings, which is, I think, the saddest piece of music ever written. And those three months just came flooding out of me. Just, I cried to the depths mm -hmm. of my being. And that piece of music, it healed me from yeah. the yeah. experience. It truly yeah. did. Mm -hmm. And it's the same with my husband, you know. Sometimes I just hate him when I walk on stage. And I'm so annoyed with him, and we've been in a fight. And I see him and hear him play and see his essence, and it heals you. It's remarkable, because a lot of times when I can't relate to people, I can relate to art and music. Yeah, yeah. A great painting, great piece of literature. Do you turn to to that yourself? I do in, in certain ways. I mean, I, I think that um, in like Asian tradition or Buddhist tradition, the thing that makes a, a work great is the transformation of the artist in the process of creating it. Yeah. So I'm sure you intuit that when you, when you are looking at something or reading something or, or listening sure. to something. And, and I think that I do as well, you know, like I love being upstairs here, you know, and just right. looking at something and thinking, you know, feeling like, oh, this, maybe this took 20 years right. to create this one piece. And but they broke through into yeah. something. They touched a mystery. Yeah, yeah. That's what um, the most beautiful thing for me is, is to feel that they did touch it, you know. Yeah. And it often brings up more questions than any answers. Yeah, which is great. And it's interesting as a writer, you know, because... Can I do a book of questions next? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you know, there's uh, another thing this woman, Susan Griffin, said to me way back when I was working on faith. She said, a lot of people think you would write a book about a topic like that because you're an expert and you want to impart your expertise. But more likely you're writing about a topic like that because that's part of the work. Yes. You know, the writing itself is part of the attempt to be in that Immersion and understand it. Well, and personally, didn't you probably wanted to know more about it yeah, too? And yeah, the way yeah. to find out more is write it. I mean, That's I right. when I was writing my memoir, um, it was startling to me how many boxes I unpacked about my own life and was able to organize my thoughts around it. That's why that happened. That's the motivation of that person. That's yeah. why I left that person. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's why yeah. I cut that tie. That thread still exists. That one I had to cut. Yeah, yeah. I found out so much, you know? I mean, ultimately, yeah. like you said, you're the first person to read the book. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I wrote it for myself. Yeah, no, totally. Totally. And that's what I think that when I said authenticity, and there are a lot of ways of playing a piece of music, and a lot of ways of writing a piece, you know? There's certainly ways of writing a piece where you are attempting to impart your expertise, and that's very different right. than that bearing of the soul and, and that really being there. Right. I think people um, 
don't care as much about expertise as they do about humanity yeah and yeah vulnerability yeah that takes a lot of pressure off doesn't it yeah it does <laughs> I can't to, write, sorry. <laughs> you don't have to fear uh, being wrong. Yeah, yeah. How wonderful. What's your next book going to be? Uh -huh. <laughs> you just got this one out, right? Um, your publisher is sitting there going. sitting right there. <laughs> uh, well, uh, somebody sent me some notes. She said, I, want, I think you should write a book about home because everybody really wants a sense of home. They want a sense of belonging, and I... As I've said on this stage, actually, in the past, I have a great, great, great thing about the Statue of Liberty. I love the Statue of Liberty, and it, she thrills me, and, and the symbol of it, and I'm very devoted to her. I've even got a few little green, you know, things, erasers and stuff. Uh, and I once contemplated getting, like, a six-foot Statue <laughs> of Liberty, but I didn't do it. I love her. And... Uh, so, uh, and somebody told me they were going to see you tomorrow, actually, yeah. And, uh, and I thought, oh, well, that's what she symbolizes for me, like, welcome home. And I just, as you did, just came back into the country. Uh, I came from England, and I was feeling kind of sad because um, it's all done by machine now. Yeah. And there used to be somebody, even though if they grilled you and it felt a little odd, like, what do you do for a living? I teach meditation. Uh, <laughs> they, uh, they would end with saying, welcome home. And I realized I really missed somebody saying welcome home at customs and immigration. Yeah, mm. it, was, uh, it was different, you know, so. Yeah. But I don't know, I, I mean, this book. Do you always, here. do you find yourself feeling like a beginner every time you start a new project? Yeah. I always feel that as well. And I, I love that because I think the air gets taken out of everything if you feel mm -hmm. like um, there's nothing new and you know exactly yeah. what you're doing, but. You know, it's always a little thrill going into the studio or walking on stage or starting a new song. Like, how do I do this again? Yeah, and then yeah, yeah. some sense of mastery takes over, but the thrill remains if you feel yeah. like a beginner. Yeah. But I mean, it, that's very Buddhist too, isn't it? Too? It's extremely Buddhist. Yeah. The Dalai Lama, even if he were sitting here, would, would be nodding his head. <laughs> he would. That's really good. <laughs> that's really good. <laughs> And, but yet, I also, I agreed with you very much about the, the craft of something or the discipline yeah. of something. And uh, I keep thinking, you know, I won't sign another contract. I'll learn how to write. <laughs> like, I'll study, you know, I'll learn the, the history and, you know, just kind of the, um, the form and the structure and, and things like that. I think it would be. There's a beautiful um, balance between mastery and being a student, you know. Yeah. And going back and forth in that is, is so satisfying to me. Like, when one fails, you can fall over into the other. Right. Right. And I, I just can't even imagine, you know, uh, maybe I'll write in another form. I don't know. Yeah, we'll write in, in uh, iambic pentameter or something. <laughs> um, uh, before we get to questions, yeah. I, I got to ask you this. Why do people marry their opposites? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm not an expert in anything. <laughs> no, I find that. I mean, I certainly did. I married my polar opposite. And in the beginning, you think, this is so great. He's so different. And then after a year, you think, why is he not like me? <laughs> but you said that your partner is your greatest teacher. Yeah, I mean, I, I would think that we, 
I think there could be different reasons. You know, one reason which would not be maybe the healthiest reason is that we will think we'll find everything we are lacking in and someone else. And then, and then we get too attached or dependent and then it doesn't, it has to shift. It, it can't really stay that way. Um, but I imagine it could be, it's a little bit exotic. You know, it's yeah, different. It's exotic. But you did say, I mean, I just read this in the book about that other person will never fill in those yeah, holes, will yeah. never make you whole. Yeah. And that's the fallacy. An entire pop music industry is built on that fallacy, by the way. <laughs> I know, I tried. I wanted, I asked people be, in the process of writing the book to send me stories and their favorite pop lyrics and things like that. And I didn't get that many pop lyrics, but. I was thinking about know, that. Just... You, you told me that you were asking that question, and I thought, well, the most real pop lyric would be foreigners, I want to know what love is, Yeah. right? Yeah. All of the other stuff about hookups and breakups and heart, yeah, okay, that's kind of busy work, but the real question is, I want to know what, what love, love is. is. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I'm I, waiting for the answer. <laughs> the whys are kind of hard, right? The why questions, yeah. you know, like, um, what is love? I just say connection, you know? Yeah. Like, let's strip it away from all those expectations and the, uh, the undue pressure. And, and you also said it's being seen. Yeah, yeah. I had a dream one night. I was um, in Barry, Massachusetts, where the Insight Meditation Society, which I co-founded, is this retreat center. And I was actually teaching a retreat there. Uh, and I was asleep at night, and I dreamt that I was teaching a retreat there. And... Uh, <laughs> Someone came in to see me in the dream and said, why do we love people? And in the dream, I said, because they see us. Mm. And then I woke up. And I thought, that was really good. <laughs> that was really good. I'm going to write that down. <laughs> yeah, really? You know, like, wow. And I think that is true. It's they so see us. true. And like what you see in your husband when he's playing is something so essential, as you said. Yeah you know, that may not manifest, I don't know if it does or not, it may not manifest at the grocery store, you know. Or it breakfast. doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> so, but there it is. But there know. it is, it's there. Yeah. Yeah, it's his soul. Yeah. Fabulous soul, okay. Should we sit together just for a few minutes again and then we'll just open it up for questions? And all these various thoughts and feelings and images, just let them come and go, like wash through you. You don't need to hold on to anything. You don't need to push anything away.
So thank you. We're going to have some time for uh, questions or discussions, questions or comments from you. Um, when the lights come back on. Yeah, thank you both so much. Um, I just really had a sense of that space between us when we meditated. I was thinking about that. Thank you for that. And um, thank you also just for the authenticity you bring. You know, you, you both have been on our stage many, many times now, and I always feel that, but I really felt that tonight, and I just appreciate that. Thank you. Okay, so um, we do have some time for some questions. So um, if you'd like to ask a question, raise your hand, and we'll bring a mic to you. We'll start right here, and then I've got you. Yeah, right here, sir. Thank you. So um, I'm still trying to formulate this question in my head. But um, so I spend my days writing grant proposals, and in my free time, I write characters and sometimes actually get to perform them. So two very, very different kinds of writing. And um, for me, with the characters, one of the most important things is that to really understand them and perform them, I have to fall in love with them. And they may not necessarily be the nicest people, um, but I have to really just get their essence. And um, so my question for Roseanne is that um, you were talking before that sometimes people from the audience scream out, I love you. And I'm wondering if um, part of that is related to um, when you perform a song, do you need to actually fall in love with the song and for it to be... Uh, authentic, and do you think that falling in love with the song when people scream they, they love you is what is resonating with them, and um, that's what's coming back to you? Um, and this, my question for Sharon is, when you're writing your material, do you feel like to write about it, you have to fall in love with what you're writing about? Because um, I know that when I'm writing grant proposals, like my objective is to capture the essence, and I want the people reading it, not, not just to, to be convinced, but to fall in love with you know, what this subject is about. So I'm trying to get at it from both sides. Well, I, as a performer, I'm not there to indulge myself and to feel that I have to love every moment of what I do. I'm, it's also my work, and I couldn't sing a song I hated. At the same time, I've been singing some songs for almost 40 years, the same song, and sometimes I'm just sick of singing it. But the, <laughs> the audience wants to hear it, and I've got to bring my full self to that moment as much as I can for that moment. And that's my work. So it's not that I'm just up there to indulge myself into doing something I love for every moment. Um, there, that's where the discipline comes in, that you're creating something you love. That doesn't mean that you enjoy or love every second of it, you know, that you're um, rigorous with the, 
presentation of it. Even if I'm bored with doing this song and I've sung it at least several thousand times, there are people in the audience who really want to hear it and it's their first time. So, it, you know, at the very least, I can be in the space that they're in and think, well, I'm doing this for, for that person. I had a, a mentor, a songwriting mentor, who gave me a great piece of advice once. He said, when nothing's working in a performance and it's, you know, people are on their blackberries and it's, you know, just nothing's working, he said, remember, there's always 6% of the audience who are poets and they really need it. They really want it. They're really there to get it. You've got to show up for them. That's so beautiful. <laughs> Who is in the 6%? I think we have more than 6% here tonight. I think actually. we do. <laughs> I think you've got a good slide. So I don't know. I haven't really conceptualized it in terms of love. I don't feel like I need to love when I'm writing it off, and I don't really like what I'm writing, but that's a different question. Um, I feel like I have to tell the truth, mm -hmm. and I have to get simple, which are all things I, I learned in counterbalance to my other tendencies, which were to get, you know, kind of like very floaty. And, um, you know, it's hard to write about something like love without sounding like a Hallmark greeting card, you know, and, and for it to be real. Uh, somebody noted how many times um, the word real appears in my titles, you know, which I don't actually choose, but uh, real love. Um, and, uh, you know, I would so often just get out in space in, in writing and uh, it wouldn't feel very real in the end, and, and so the, the counsel I always got was get down, you know, just tell the truth, just tell the story. Mm -hmm. You know, don't just try to embellish it, you know, so magnificently that it's like gooey, you know. Um, so that's what I always tell myself, just tell the truth. That's good. You're both talking about showing up in a way too, which I know you talk about as a simile for love. We have a question in the front here. Hi, thank you both so much. Um, I loved hearing you talk. And I have a two-part uh, question about music specifically because that's my form of art. So one is um, I really appreciated you talking about fear, both of you. And for me, I actually stopped performing. Um, I still write, but I would have such physical anxiety for like three weeks before a performance that I kind of thought, oh, is it worth it? And I don't know if that ever goes away or if there are, like, mindfulness helps with the physical aspects of the fear. It's part one. And part two is I feel like now that I'm happier, I feel like I almost, I shouldn't write about unrequited love or, like, the, the, the truth that you were talking about because, I don't, you know, I don't want to be, like, living in the dark even though I know, too, that sad songs can still open people up, but there's part of me that kind of feels like, oh, maybe I should start writing mantra, you know, music now and um, quit it with the pop. So I would just love to hear your thoughts on those things. Thank you. Um, I don't have fear about going on stage, but there's always that, you know, before you go on, that moment of heightened anticipation. If it's something really big like Carnegie Hall, like I had fear before I played Carnegie Hall or something, you know, that's out of the realm of a normal performance. 
But I know people who have had terrible, terrible stage fright. And some of them keep pushing themselves to the point where I think, why are you torturing yourself? Like, can you let it go? If it's that painful and that awful, can you let it go without making yourself feel bad about it? Because not everybody is a performer, and not everybody who writes music has to be a performer. There are plenty of people who create music who aren't performers. So that's one thing. If it's torture, and it keeps being torture, and it's not, then why? Um, what was the second part? Was oh, about, do I have an obligation to start writing more like spiritual Oh, see, mantra? yeah, I don't like, I don't like that. I don't like, I like, I like an edge. <laughs> and <laughs> I don't want to get rid of the edge. Um, she probably feels a, more compelled to write about you know, the good part than I do. <laughs> no, keep it real. Keep it real, keep exactly. It real. Keep it authentic. I mean, we're still human. We're still going to suffer. I mean, that's what we have in common, right? And um, art and music are there to reveal our lives to us and reflect ourselves back to us, and it's not all pretty. And I, I don't know that about mindfulness so much, per se, playing a role, but... Um, for whatever period of time you may wish to experiment to see if you hit a different kind of balance, the way I did, you know, since I was so terrified um, to begin with, uh, it's more like loving kindness. It's actually kind of a methodology that will help you connect in a different way to everyone in the room. Even if you can't see them all, you only see silhouettes, it's uh, wishing them happiness, wishing them peace, wishing yourself happiness and peace and um, is a different sense than they're out there waiting to get me, you know? Yeah. Uh, it's just like, okay, here we are together. And I actually learned something about that from the Dalai Lama as well. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I was not on the stage with him. <laughs> Although I was close to being on the stage with him. Sorry. Uh, no, I love he was, he was teaching in Tucson one year, and he would speak in the morning and the afternoon, and they wanted Western teachers to speak in the evening, so I was the first evening, and... He wasn't there, unfortunately, but, you know, it was like, I think, 1,200 people there, and, which was, you know, the largest crowd at that point I'd ever talked to, and his throne was behind me, and, and then it was done, and I was so happy, and uh, the way he was teaching was he would, he would read a passage, and then uh, as it was being translated, he would flip to the next passage, but one day there was something in what the translator said he didn't agree with. So he said, that's not what I said. And the translator said, yes, it is. And he said, no, it's not. And the translator said, yes, it is. So he flipped back to the passage in dispute. And he burst out into this big, big laugh. And he said, oh, ha, 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 I made a mistake. <laughs> and I thought, look at that. If I'd made a mistake in front of those same 1,200 people like a few nights ago, first of all, would I have admitted it? And second of all, would I have been laughing about it? I don't think so. <laughs> You know, so there's something about that, like, oh, yeah, here we are, blew it, let's go on. You know, and you can see if that happens or not. One more thing about fear, though. You know, some great, great performers lived with stage right. Laurence Olivier threw up before every performance, but he kept doing it. So, you know, I guess you have to know in yourself, is that, is that your life? Is that your path? And if it's not, if you're torturing yourself for no reason, then let it go without guilt. 
Thanks. Other hands? Yes, one right here. I'm curious about, you both were, were talking about, Roseanne, you said that there are people, uh, you both had kind of traumatic childhoods and how sad it was that people kind of slip through the cracks and don't connect. And so I am wondering who was it in each of your lives that, if it, if it weren't your parents, that inspired you to go to India or inspired you to be an artist? Mm. Who loved you, you know? What a great question. It is a great question, and I've been asked that at, at different times. I actually don't know who to point to um, until I went to India, you know, and then uh, I had many teachers sequentially, and they were each very important to me, including one woman, um, this woman named Deepama, who's the person who told me to teach and therefore created really the rest of my life. And I was being interviewed for something once, and the interviewer said in a kind of very shy, uh, hesitant way, do you think she re you reparented yourself with her? And I said, I reparented myself with all of them. Mm. You know, but that was once I got there, which is why I look at that moment of how did I get there, you know? And, what made me bold enough and, you know, I, I can't answer that. I don't know. No, 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 nobody said that. Uh, I mean, I took an Asian philosophy. You could say it was disembodied, you know, like, uh, and I, I'm glad you used the word connection because I think that's what it's all about. You know, like, I took an Asian philosophy course. I heard um, about the Buddha. I heard about the Buddha's teaching. I heard... Uh, there were a couple of things in that course that were really important. One was um, the really upfront, frank acknowledgement of the suffering in life, which I certainly knew very well internally, but had never had external confirmation about. Mm. You know? And so I felt kind of aberrant and weird and left out and isolated forever until you know, that moment was like, oh, everybody suffers. What do you know? It's not just me. Uh, and then I heard about the prospect of there being tools to actually do something about that suffering called meditation. And uh, there was, a, you know, was in the, one of the breathtaking things about the Buddhist teaching is that no one's left out of the field of possibility. Mm. And so it wasn't like you had to be of, you know, in those days of noble birth or, uh, you know, a certain socioeconomic status. It was not, nothing like that. Anybody who was interested could do it. So, and I heard there were things you could do. So I looked around Buffalo, New York in 1970. I didn't see it anywhere. Uh, I haven't been back in a long time. Probably if I was there now, it would be everywhere, right? Um, but, and I heard about this program. I thought I'm going to go to India. Um, I also can't point to one person, but um, later on when my dad got cleaned, he was a really good parent about my work, about my songwriting. And he would tell me I was good even when I, they weren't good. You know, He would just keep encouraging. He was kind of, re did really good parenting about that. And uh, later on, my first husband, who was also my record producer at the time, he gave me a lot of confidence when I didn't have it in myself. I was just thinking it was mostly men that I got. My mother did not want me to do it. 
did not want me to become a musician, didn't want me to be a writer, didn't want me to be an artist, wanted me to get married and have kids and be quiet. <laughs> and, um, but, sorry? Right, I mean, her template for being a performer or a musician was that you were a drug addict, you got divorced, you were never home, your relationships fell apart, you know, she was understandable. But I also gleaned parenting wherever I could. Mm -hmm. I just somehow knew to do that. If uh, somebody was nice to me in a store, an older woman, you know, I would take it in. I was smart about that. I still do. It does. Cool. Any other questions? OK, I have one right here, yeah. Hi, thank you again, both of you, for being here. So I was thinking about this love. Uh, when I was a kid in high school, I was read The Art of Loving by Eric Fromm. And I wondered in this book, Sharon, uh, in addition to the Dalai Lama and Pema Chodron and Winnicott, you know, via your friend, what were some of the other influences uh, you think and uh, theories, things you studied? And then second question, and that is in the art of loving. I remember, if I remember this correctly, different types of love, parental love, child love, romantic. What's the common theme, do you think? Uh -huh. I think the common theme is, is uh, pure connection. Like we could say authentic connection. In fact, I think that used to be the subtitle of my book. Uh, <laughs> the art of authentic connection, and uh, it became mindful connection through some way or another, but um, I, I think it is that moment of seeing and being seen, or uh, it, it's something about authenticity. And authenticity comes in a lot of different ways. It's not just kind of asserting what you want, you know? Uh, it, it, it might be in um, expressing your vulnerability or being willing to not be in charge or, or it might be expressing something. Um, I tell one story in the book about a friend of mine who outlived her cancer prognosis by about 40 years, really. And uh, she talked about first getting diagnosed and looking at everything in her life, like absolutely everything. And one of the things she said in describing herself in those days was, I used to be the kind of person who would sit in the car with my husband and I'd be boiling hot. And the most I could bring myself to say was, are you warm, dear? And she said, that changed, <laughs> you know? So there's something about that, that feeling of truth, you know, like in, in that moment. Um, there were a lot of people, uh, Mark Wallen, who had, a lot of interesting research um, that's very contemporary about inherited trauma. Uh, you know, the ways it seems we can inherit the traumatic experience of our forebears onto the fourth generation thus far. Uh, because interestingly enough, that, that's a kind of um, uh, passageway through time, through genetic expression. And the hot new area, I'm told, of meditation research is not even neuroscience, it's genetic expression. Wow. You know, so if perhaps we are inheriting our trauma, you know, generation after generation, wouldn't it be interesting if this tool actually was one of the things that could counter that? Because it, it works, it seems to work directly on genetic expression. Um, he was one, Sue Johnson, there were a lot of people who 
I really, uh, I learned from, and the last section of the book is all about love for all beings. And there's a lot in there about people who are at the heart of social movements of different kinds, motivated by love. Um, these three friends of mine from Baltimore, Maryland, who have this thing called the Holistic Life Foundation, which um, works in the inner city in Baltimore, bringing tools of yoga and meditation um, to the kids. They're phenomenal. Uh, uh, Ai-jen Poo, who's in there, um, who uh, has two different organizations working with uh, usually women, although not always, who are um, doing home health care and you know, uh, don't have union representation and um, are struggling in a lot of ways. And uh, you know, so the people who've really taught me that you can strongly, strongly seek change, but coming from a place of love. What about you, Roseanne? Do you have any, are there any particular inspirations you can point to for really the subject of love? Well, I just thought of something when Sharon was talking about um, the genetic traumas and, and living out the history of your ancestors. Um, so the last record I made was about the South, and I spent a lot of time going to the Delta to get inspired to write these songs. And um, I, my family was from the South, and I thought I knew about what I was writing about, what I was doing. And what I found out much more deeply about, and very unexpected, was about um, the suffering of black people in the South. I knew it cognitively, but it really started to sink in when I was there how profoundly so many black people suffered. So, and my grandfather was an Arkansas farmer and he was a racist and, you know, stone cold racist. And so I was doing, playing in, in Mississippi at this place, Dockery Farms, and it was this big event. And at an after party, uh, after the show, I did my show, there was a party and there was this 90 year old black blues harmonica player playing at the party. And nobody was paying attention. There were a lot of rich white people at this party. And um, me and the band kept eyeing this musician. We were really the only ones who were kind of interested in him, kept looking at him. So the party ended, and I went over to him. And I kind of knelt down by his chair to say hello. And I said, it was so wonderful. Thank you so much. I could tell instantly he was really uncomfortable that I was kneeling by him. A white woman was kneeling next to his chair. So I kind of stood up. And he didn't say much, and then he said, oh, honey, he said, back in the 50s, when I was behind the plow in the field, we had a radio on the porch. And when your daddy came on the radio, we would all come out of the field and run over to stand around the radio and listen to him. Mm. And I started crying. It's like, my grandfather was just over the river plowing the field, hating that man and everyone like him. And it was this moment of profound racial healing for mm -hmm. me. Like, I thought, you know, 
I borrow from his tradition. He's, he's the prototype. I'm getting all the attention. All these people came to see me, and you know, I'm winning Grammys, and I got all this attention. But that man yeah. who walked behind the plow and is playing the harmonica, everything I'm doing is borrowing from his tradition mm -hmm. and him. And the honor I felt for him and the humility and the realization that the historical trauma in my DNA of my grandfather's racism had to be broken in my generation forever. Mm -hmm. That that's um, a responsibility that I have. And it doesn't have to be a burden, actually. There can be such beauty in it. I don't know why that came up from that question, but. <laughs> oh, I'm glad I asked. <laughs> Thank you both so much. We are um, nearing the end of our time, but I hope that you'll come on upstairs, um, pick up a copy of Real Love in the shop, and uh, Sharon will, and hopefully Roseanne will be upstairs too to chat a little bit further, and, and Sharon will sign some books. Um, and Sharon, you'll be back, I think, July 5th, mm -hmm. Wednesday, 1 o'clock, here for our weekly mindfulness meditation mm -hmm. session. Roseanne, I hope you'll be back soon. I'm going to be back for her meditation. <laughs> <laughs> all right, we'll see then you we'll all here in a week, calories. okay? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, both of you. Thank you for listening. This podcast has been brought to you by the Be Here Now Network. Join us this summer for the Real Love Challenge. To get your copy of Real Love, visit SharonSalzberg.com. May all beings be happy.